This is Aliens and Artists, part three of our conversation with Sebastiano De Filippi. I'm Stuart Davis. In this episode, Sebastiano relates the fraud and grandiose hoaxing of one Angel Cristo Acoglanis. Let's take a good look inside a UFO cult and a UFO cult leader. I find this story riveting, so let's survey the oddity of this odyssey that is Angel Cristo. Well, it's very interesting you say Odyssey because this guy posed uh, as, a, as a Greek person. He was of Greek descent. I mean, his father was Greek, but he was born in Argentina and he didn't speak a word of, of Greek or any other language uh, outside Spanish. So his full name was Angel Cristo Acoblanis, and which is a very <laughs> powerful name for a, a self-appointed ghoul because, of course, it means angel and a Christ. So no pressure there, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He was from a very uh, deeply um, Christian believing family. And uh, as you I'm sure you're aware, uh, Angelos in, in Greek means messenger, usually divine messenger. And Christos means uh, means the anointed one, no, the Messiah. So he was uh, the the divine messenger and messiah of his of his poor Greek uh, immigrant uh, family. Anything interesting in the etymology of the name Acoglanus? No, nothing. No, actually, it's a, it's a quite common family name in, in Greece. Uh, the family was from was from Thessaloniki, a very well known city in Greece, and they immigrated to Argentina because of you know. He was from this uh, poor immigrant Greek family from Thessaloniki, and they re- relocated to Argentina because they were so poor in Greece. They really needed to to go to to the Americas and try to rebuild uh, the way of of life, uh, so to speak. So this guy was born in 1924, and the funny thing, he was born on December 25. So he <laughs> was angel, he was Christ, and he was born in Christmas. It's just crazy. Oh my gosh. And he, he liked to say that actually in his uh, uh, identification documents, uh, the date is not uh, 1924, but 1925. So December 25, 1925, that would be the same exact day of Carlos Castaneda's birth. So that would be an, another amazing coincidence. Anyway, this guy was, uh, as I was telling you, from a very poor immigrant family. He barely made it through elementary school, so he was really non-educated. He had these esoteric interests, possibly Rosicrucian and uh, Blavatskian, you know, philosophical interests. Oh, yeah. She comes up often. Uh, exactly, yeah. The, the very few books he read were from that um, area, uh, theosophy and the like. And uh, he had a, a very interesting gift for healing. Apparently, he inherited from his father, also an illiterate person, but who had this kind of gift and interest in health issues. So as soon as 
he got uh, a girlfriend, he, he married and he relocated with this woman in, to a small town, a smaller town here in, in the center of Argentina. And he started working as best as he could as a, you know, virtually doing every kind of menial job because he was not uh, formally trained or educated. So he had to drive a bus or, or a truck or do small uh, construction, easy construction work. I mean, he, he was really not um, into, into a profession. Uh, but one day he just uh, left his home, his house, and abandoned his wife and his two small, his two small, small child, children, uh, to starve, actually. And they, they were risking uh, starvation because they were really, really poor. And he disappeared completely. And he rebuilt his life as a, as a healer, wandering from one city to another one, and uh, usually getting into new liaisons with different women and having further offsprings. And then perhaps after a couple of years, moving to yet another city and abandon his new family and building up another one. And so he has this kind of, he had this kind of gypsy life and um, bigamous or, or polygamous life. And soon enough, he established himself as a, as a rather well-known uh, healer. And he started to pose as a, as a medical doctor. He started to, to, you know, to, to introduce himself as a physician, as a formally trained college physician. And after many years of wandering, he ended up uh, with yet another woman and yet another family uh, in the capital of Argentina, Buenos Aires, with a rather well-established uh, medical office um, in which, once again, he introduced himself as a doctor. And he managed to, uh, to get a, a very um, high-class entourage of patients or clients, if you prefer, which were presidents, uh, former presidents, secretaries of state, actors, TV personalities, uh, finance moguls, uh, lots of politicians, uh, dictators from uh, any number of South American countries. And so he virtually became rich with his, uh, let's, let's call it profession. Because the, uh, the guy was a fraud. He, he didn't study medicine at all, but he did have some personal uh, special qualities uh, for healing. And he also was up to a certain degree uh, self-taught in, in, in chiropractic and uh, osteopathy and this kind of uh, disciplines related to the bones and muscles and, and this kind of manual technique uh, in which he was really good. I mean, he, he really um, was successful as, as a healer and he, he managed not to get uh, in prison most of the time because of uh, false credentials. So that would be a first uh, brush stroke uh, of um, 
I guess ostensibly he successfully healed some of these high-caliber clients, and that resulted in part in this financial support from them. This contributed to his wealth. Is that accurate? What was his success rate, even though he was a fraudulent doctor? Who did he heal, and what resulted from that? He was really rather successful. Successful. I mean, most of the time he managed to to heal people, or at least to to get them better. And uh, I will just mention two two very different examples for this. The longtime dictator, very longtime dictator of Paraguay, General Alfredo Stroessner, uh, was his uh, his friend and patient, and all his um, family were his patients. And uh, as soon as uh, Stroessner needed uh, Acoglanis' services, he sent a private plane from Asuncion to Buenos Aires to pick him up and just uh, bring up uh, bring him up to Asuncion to treat him or his wife or or whoever in the family. Uh, and and also Acoglanis uh, got as a gift uh, a house in Asuncion and. Uh, Sturzner kind of bought uh, a medicine, uh, a PhD medicine diploma um, for Akoglanis. Illegal, totally illegal, of course. He, he re- literally bought it because he had the power to do it. And the other example, well, one of my closest friends up to this uh, date, uh, up to now, uh, was very extremely, he had a very complicated um condition after an accident. Uh, I mean, she was paralyzed. Uh, Her her neck, her vertebrae uh, were really damaged. And uh, all physicians told uh, her parents that there was was little or nothing to do about it. And uh, they they went to Akoglanis' office and the guy in five minutes just put his hands on this girl's uh, neck and did a very strong uh, movement with the vertebrae and uh, he sent her home, cured, healed. So the guy was really not infallible, but uh, he had a very high rate of success. It's back to this combination we've been talking about in previous episodes, which is the braided nature of fraud and authenticity, a confusing kaleidoscopic picture. Is this the time period when Acoglanus began to stitch together a patchwork cosmology that included the Himalayas, UFOs, Shambhala, sourced from a few books and what ultimately culminated in a cult? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, during his lifetime, kind of cultivated in, in parallel ways, his uh, healings healing arts, and his interest in esotericism, the occult, uh, theosophy, Shambhala, Agarthi, um, and what have you. But at one point in the uh, 1980s, he kind of uh, decided to merge his two interests into one. And so he, be- he began, to, um, he began to, to bring along friends and um, patients to this uh, very special secluded place, in a, which is a, a section of the Mount, of Mount Ritorco in Cordoba. 
and he started to to um, you know generate this kind of doctrine which is quite blavatskian and um and so he started what yeah we may call a cult that was in 1983 he told his uh, friends and patients and admirers that he had just been possessed his body was being possessed by a kind of uh, ascended master a spiritual creature a light being an extraterrestrial called saruma and uh, that as saruma he had a mission which was to retrieve to to discover once again uh, what was the south american shambhala or agarthi which was named erx e-r-k-s and was uh, below ground uh, near the uritorco so he started this we would call it contactism phase of his uh, of his life and um he usually collected his followers, his first followers among his patients, because as you can well imagine, if you have a very serious health condition, which is not um, uh, easily handled in a positive way with, with good results um, by professional physicians, and you go to this guy and this guy cures you, and he's also very charismatic and very kind of sympathetic person, uh, it was very easy to fall prey of his uh, exaggerations and uh, lies and uh, and whatever he wanted you to believe. So he took along these people to the mountain during the night, and thus his contactee phase began. You've mentioned that this area, Mount Uratorco, is similar to a Mount Shasta or a Skinwalker Ranch. It has a history. Is there any indication that some of the events surrounding Aquaglanus were genuine? Were they all fraudulent or misinterpretations ultimately? No, I would say, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think each and every contact uh, ritual by Aquaglanus had a share of its share of uh, hoax and uh, misinterpretation and also its fair share of paranormal. There are some things which are very, very easily uh, explained out uh, from his experiences, and uh, you can easily see what he was pointing uh, towards in the distance and uh, misrepresenting as, as this the secret city, underground city of Berks. And in one of my books, I just proved beyond any, any doubt with, with really photographics, photographic analysis, and triangulation and uh, a comparative work uh, between footage and, and, and pictures that that was a really a very human structure. It was just, you know, it was so surprising to see that particular structure in the middle of the night from a mountain in the middle of chanting and uh, that he got away with that. Uh, so, for example, this this thing he showed and explained it was the city of Erks, that was, for example, uh, a hoax that was not real. And um, actually, I had the the chance to to see it myself from the very same vintage point, and uh, and that was the final proof, if still needed, that it was a, a normal structure which just gets his lights on. Uh, 
at night, and it's quite a quite a spectacle. It's quite quite a, a sight, but it's absolutely human and normal. Other things are very very strange and very uh, difficult to explain. Like for example, strange celestial voices, like like uh, some I don't know presences moaning or or almost weeping or singing uh, and some very closed uh, by lights, colored lights, some of which were uh, captured on film. So yeah, I think it's it, it always had this mixture of fraudulent and and veracity. We'll never know for sure. This is purely conjecture, but it's interesting to wonder whether some of these phenomena Celestial voices, disembodied moaning and weeping, singing, lights. I wonder if there could have been a psychokinetic component to this. I agree with both your statements. The first one, we will never know for sure. <laughs> and the second one, yes, an egregoric um, phenomenon. I mean, uh, he, he worked that way. He, he just, he just bought, bought, brought there... Uh, and increasingly uh, numerous uh, groups of people to chant and to pray in a way, and they they would be all of them very into into that and really expecting something. So yeah, why not? They may, in in a way or partially, they may have created the phenomenon uh, themselves, or at least helped the phenomenon to manifest uh, through their fantasy and faith and energy and feelings and what have you. So we have this perfect storm of conditions, people having been genuinely healed of a serious affliction, who are then folded into an ideal recruitment tool, which Aquaglanus then expands and transposes to the UFO cult, taking people out on a regular basis, this reliable set of features in the landscape, that all converges with this belief system he's trying to instill in the experiencers. Is this 1983 or 1984, where he claims to be channeling Saruma? Where did this light language he was channeling appear in the process? Well, um, there's a little story to, to explain this better. In the uh, very early 1983, uh, Akuglanis visited a kind of hot spot in Uruguay, which is the uh, nearby country uh, here in Argentina, uh, which is called Aurora, which is a ranch, pretty much as, as, as the Skinwalker Ranch, actually, with cattle mutilations and, and strange animals and strange beings and strange nocturnal lights and almost the same kind of phenomena. And he met the owner of the, of the Aurora Ranch, and this guy, who was also named Angel Angel, uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing, his second name was Maria. So you have the Angel Christ meeting with... <laughs> it's ridiculous. It, it cannot get crazier than this. Well, are the odds, right? And this, um, the owner of the ranch, who was um, apparently a believer of these things, kind of suggested to him that there was this uh, extraterrestrial creature, disembodied creature, uh, looking for a, a body, a human body, to uh, 
to go on a mission, on a double mission, a healing mission and uh, uh, a contactism uh, mission. And this was named Saruma. So following Akulanis' uh, narrative, he accepted this being in his body. And so starting on that particular year, he became a, an even more gifted healer. And he began to, to be, in a way, not only channel, but to be Saruma, to be two, two people in the same body. And he came out with this Erk story and his uh, ceremonial uh, things on the Uditorco. And what you just mentioned, a language uh, of his own, which he called Irdin, which is a hodgepodge of, a hodgepodge of uh, all kind of what kind of languages and none. I mean, it makes really no, no syntactic or, or grammar sense. But he was a very, um, a very picturesque and uh, interesting element added to the mix. It's a theme of so many contact events, channeled languages, downloads, light languages. It's everywhere now, but it probably wasn't at this point yet. Well, yes and no. Actually, uh, Blavatsky ha had her, her own secret and sacred language. And uh, so I guess Akoglanis was copying her, uh, was, was just copy-pasting from Blavatsky. Uh, I think it's, it's not his idea, really. He had a great desire to turn all of this into books and was not able to do so. Exactly. That was a problem because he, he wanted to, to expand, so to speak. Also, he wanted to to create a kind of temple and a kind of school and a kind of special spiritual hospital or clinic. So he had great projects in mind. He bought uh, land near the Ritorco to, to, to start, you know, projecting these enterprises. But there, was, there were two problems. The first one, he was not able to speak properly in public because he was really uneducated. So he had a very limited um, grasp of his own <laughs> native tongue, Spanish. He was also not an attractive person or, or had an attractive voice, quite the opposite. But um, the main problem is he was not able to write. I mean, he tried and he, um, he typed he hand-typed a series of uh, small diaries, journals, with, with chan channeled messages. Uh, but they were so badly written. The Spanish was so bad. Uh, it's almost impossible to, to, to get the meaning, if there's any, any, anything like that. I don't know. But in, in, in any case, it's, it was so, so badly written. It was just impossible. And certainly, he just typed those and, and made photocopies out of them and hand them over to his uh, devotees. But there was certainly no publishing house uh, who was, uh, which was going to publish such badly written uh, messages and accounts. So he started looking for, for more or less professional authors to, to do the job in his stead. And, and up to a certain point, he succeeded. His real success in this came very late in his life, and during his last year uh, in this uh, 
on this planet, which was 1981, I'm sorry, 1990, 1989, right, 89, when he met a Brazilian guy, uh, Trigueirinho, which was, among other things, a professional writer. And he took him like a, you know, a pupil and uh, a new and privileged devotee. And out of his uh, journals, diaries, and uh, conversations, Trigueirinho fashioned something like 40 books uh, and established a big cult with an entire city of his own in Brazil. So, in a way, the, um, all those projects Akuglanis had for himself, he was not able to, to really accomplish because he died sooner than expected. In an appalling manner, which we'll get to. Anyway, we can go to that if you want. Uh, but they were uh, really put into practice in a very spectacular way by this guy, this Brazilian guy, Trigueirinho, on Brazilian soil. So yes, there is a fascinating left turn in how this did not end well. But before we get there, is it 1989 or so when he's having hundreds of people, one or two hundred, attending these rituals, these channeling events? Was that the peak of it all for him? Yeah, it was. The thing is this, um, he also had another problem, not only not, not being able to write properly. He was very aware of other uh, contact men and um, particularly George Adamski in the States and Eugenio Siragusa in Italy. And uh, he noticed that life was not easy on those two guys. I mean, it, it, it was all well and nice to, to get famous and to write books or, or to have books written about them and to be public personalities and to everything we know. Um, but both of them had also serious problems and Siragusa ended up in jail. So Akuglan is having this uh, very high class entourage and making a lot of money uh, as a self-appointed physician. He wanted to expand and he expanded in the sense that he began the, his ceremonies in the 83 with like two or three people and then 10 people and then 20 and then 30 and then more than 100. But he still was not sure uh, of, you know, um, going public with it. One thing was to have a, a large group of devotees, more than 100, but uh, an entirely different one was to really go in front of a camera with your own face and your own name and say, I am Anjan Christolakoglanis, I am channeling an extraterrestrial, I am uh, a messiah or whatever. He didn't want to do that. He was like torn between the, the, the need and, and, and his, his enthusiasm for, uh, to expand the cult, so to speak. But on the other hand, he was not really ready to, to go public, fully public. So that was another problem. And he was in the middle of this conundrum and at the peak of his uh, popularity as both healer and contact man when he met his end in a quite unexpected way. Well, that's story. <laughs> Tell us how it ended and I'll follow up with some questions. Well, uh, it ended very 
very badly. One of the things that uh, this guy had, he has a huge Don Juan uh, kind of complex. I mean, he was extremely, extremely attracted to women, and he could not really help it. That's one of the reasons because he, you know, uh, sort of remarried like four times or five times. But he also had this unaccountable uh, panoply of lovers. Uh, he was very charismatic and could be very charming. And uh, the thing is, he, he knew no, no limits and no boundaries in this. So in, in the last few years, he was uh, having a relation, a liaison with his best friend's wife. And his best friend was also a person uh, of uh, both financial and political power. He was a, a, man, on, a man of Juan Perón, the, the former president. He was a very devoted cultist of Agoglanis also, not only his friend. Well, the guy was, <laughs> was having this uh, liaison with his friend's wife, and it did not end well. His friend, whose name was Ruben Antonio, just showed up at Akuglanis' office in the downtown Buenos Aires, and he shot him dead. Seven times, is that right? So, seven times, yeah. I mean, he, the guy was, he really wanted to be sure. <laughs> he was committed. He was really committed, yes. And he uh, immediately uh, turned himself uh, in the nearest uh, police station saying, you know, I've just killed a sorcerer, and that's what you have to do with sorcerers. You have to kill them all. Now that I have, now that I have killed this particular sorcerer, I feel much relieved, much relieved. And so that ended Akuglanis' life. Not his case, because he then uh, left, you know, several widows and several children, sons and daughters, and granddaughters, uh, and grandsons, and an extended family, and a bunch of patients, clients, devotees, friends, uh, acquaintances. So the story rolled on, but without him. This is reading between the lines a bit, but it sounded like the murderer tried to give on Hel Cristo a way out a few times. He was granting him latitude to stop, and he probably would not have been killed if he just would have stopped. Do you feel like that's the case? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yes. That's a fact, actually. That's a fact. But once again, Akuglanis was this guy with no, he knew no boundaries. And um, of course, up to a certain point, we can understand his, his uh, psychology. I mean, this wonderful healer, he is this wonderful contact man, he is this wonderful charismatic man with women, he had money, he was revered, so at one point he probably felt he, he really was entitled to do anything he wanted and get away with it. And up to a certain point he managed, I mean, he was 64 years old and he lived most of his life in a very uh, crazy way. And, uh, but well, in the end, 
it didn't work <laughs> anymore. An abrupt conclusion, to say the least. What's the status of the cult today? Millions of books sold from 1989 at taking off and pollinating. There are descendants and followers. Is it alive today? Has it spawned other iterations? In a way, yes. But it's a kind of complex scenario. Because uh, during his last months of life, as I was telling you, Akoglanis toyed with the idea of going public and going institutional with a, with a building, with a clinic, with a, with a temple, with a kind of spiritual school. And so really going public and institutional. He, he didn't manage to, to do it because he was killed. But his disciple, his Brazilian disciple, Trigarino, did it. And uh, he did way more than a hospital and a temple and a school. He built a city of his own in Brazil. Uh, now, Trigorino passed away just a couple of years ago uh, from old age. So from 1989 up until two years ago, he was the kind of ruler of this small uh, city-sized metaphysical country in Brazil. Uh, the place is still in existence in the, uh, in the region of Figueira in Brazil. So I would say that the main, the official institutional continuation of Agroglanis' cult is Trigorino's hairs uh, in Brazil. Uh, in the place in which the, the contacts took place, which is Capilla del Monte, the, at the Mount of Ritorco, the situation got really, and, and is still out of hand, because uh, one widow tried to do uh, something, the other widow tried to do another thing, and one of his, his uh, sons from his first marriage tried to be also, to build up a kind of a, a cult, and also a, a lot of self-appointed gurus and masters and teachers and guides began to sprung up in Capilla del Monte. Most of them, they didn't know Akoglanis. They don't know Akoglanis. They know nothing about this guy's story and, and the, the real history of the place. They just are, uh, you know, uh, building a business uh, in the town, and uh, they are quite successful. So nowadays, if you go to this place, uh, you will find it is a kind of Roswell in South America. It is a city thriving through esoteric, esoteric uh, tourism, and you have a lot of self-appointed uh, self experts about ERCs and the Ritorco, which will sell you nightly visits to different sections of the mountain to make contact with lights. Uh, needless to say, 99% of uh, what you will see by paying these guys are cars in the distance and towns in the distance and a water dam in the distance and all kind of really very normal and <laughs> very human lights. But that's the way it works. Nowadays, it's a business. To what degree do you feel Glanis believed in his own workings? and? Did that modulate over the course of his life? I think it did modulate. And, uh, you know, the other day we were discussing the possibility that the phenomenon um, works inherently with a hoax 
and deceit and fraud and fabrication uh, combined with true facts, true phenomena, real things, real facts. Um, and I think this also uh, applies to the uh, to the mind of the contact people, to someone like Akoglanis, in the way that at the same time they believe and they don't, or they believe up to a certain point, and then they know they start they start exaggerating or making things up. But then it's a very um, it's a very organic process because if you try to get into this man's head. Just go figure. I mean, he's uh, like inventing, uh, he's making up some exaggerated detail. And then he finds that 100 people believe that with their full heart and are ecstatic about this. So maybe he starts thinking, well, in the end, perhaps I thought I was making this up, but it's true. <laughs> it's real because here I have 100 people. 100 persons which are very happy with this. So it's, I, I, never, th I never thought this kind of, of gurus were 100% fraud and self-conscious frauds or 100%, uh, you know, genuine. I never thought that. I think it's always a complex mix thing. You know, as, as in everything human, would you say that you are only a good guy? I'm sure you are. And I'm sure you are most of the time, perhaps 99.9% .9 of the time. But no one is 100% pure and angelical and good and nice or 100%, you know, a pervert or a bad person. I mean, <laughs> I always mention the example of uh, Adolf Hitler, who was a an amazing bastard and a mass murder, but he was a vegetarian and loved small children and loved his dog. You know, there's no people on the face, there's no one person on the face of the earth which is just genuine and sincere and believing and good or the opposite. I think it's, it's a very mixed bag of things. And then we also have the inverse. There's an argument to be made that Whatever the phenomenon's selection process is for choosing experiencers, it doesn't seem to be predicated on moral or ethical development. Right, right. Spot on. I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. Uh, I'm not sure what are the qualities the phenomenon usually looks for in, in people, in this kind of person, but it's certainly not, he's certainly not after cultivated, well-read, intellectual, honest, straightforward, socially skilled, normally socially skilled people. Not, not usually, no. And often, often it looks for really lumpen characters, like marginal characters. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. Or perhaps it's just because they are more prone to accept, embrace, believe, manifest, elaborate. It's a, it's a great mystery, but it's a constant. I mean, it's not something that we just find in this particular case. We could expand that marginal aspect, whether socially, psychologically, spiritually, 
there does seem to be a liminal attraction. Perhaps that is part of what forms a match with outliers, for better and for worse. We can't seem to overlay an ethical or moral model that accounts for who is contacted. I wonder what the fallout was, or the downside for you in exposing the underbelly of this cult activity. What happened? Well, what usually happens when you mess up with religion, cults, beliefs, and um, very deeply into it kind of persons, very pleasant things like death threats and uh, <laughs> and uh, and what have you. I mean, it's not certainly a pleasant thing to go through. Uh, I'm extremely respectful when when I'm writing or speaking about religion related topics and this is certainly a religion related topic it's all about religion in the end religion and spirituality uh, and belief um, so I try to be really 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 uh, not only respectful but also empathic and try not to judge people or situations and just tell the facts uh, as I found them the thing is, uh, the facts I found about Akuglanis is that he was a, a huge, I mean, a colossal liar. He just could not help it. He was just lying, lying, lying all the time. He was making things up in his family life, in his personal life, in his professional life, in his contactee life, making things up all the time. And I, I was able to prove that. And that was not well uh, accepted by his followers, whether it be direct followers and friends, acquaintances, you know, devotees who, who really worked with him, or new uh, cultists who have little knowledge about Akoglanis and just see this book about this really, uh, really strange guy. I mean, if I would tell you the entire story of Akoglanis' life, it's, it, it reads like a novel. I mean, it's amazing. This guy really lived um, many lives, many lives during one lifetime. And he just went on rebuilding his life and with new partners, new families, new cities, new offices, new names. It's, it's just like a movie, a sci-fi movie. So, yes, that was not very well accepted, and a lot of people just thought this is the work of an of a evil person, a very mean-spirited, under, spiritually underdeveloped person who just wanted to uh, sell a bunch of lies about their saint, their new Saint Paul, and... Um, making things up in this book, which is exactly the opposite. I mean, I just uh, had this 25 years research, which was extremely difficult, long, and, and very difficult. And, um, and just published the sheer facts, proven facts. Uh, of course, this also means that I, I, I proved and published that what Pakaglanis said was Eric's is just a normal thing with normal human lights, which are turned on during the night. So
So, as you well know, perhaps you are aware of this wonderful book, When Prophecy Fails. There's no way, usually, to change uh, a cultist's uh, mind. There's no way. It's preset. They already have all the answers, while people like me, I have none. I have none. Uh, and so they will, uh, you know, explain out whatever fact, proof, book, or or thing they will encounter, and just play it, play it out, and um, just keep on believing. And, and the other person will be their enemy, and an evil person, and a demonic presence, and uh, a person incapable of love and empathy, and just a stupid person who doesn't understand spirituality. So I guess that's me. <laughs> Did that kind of reaction from cultists dissuade you from doing this work or temper your passion for exposing difficult truths? I have to tell you this. While I was doing this 25 years long research, I, I didn't think about going public with a book telling the story. I just did it for myself. I was very interested in this part and this hot spot. I was very interested in this guy and, and the whole story and the whole narrative. And I really wanted the truth or at least something uh, near the truth. After 25 years, I could say I really got pretty much what I wanted. A lot, a lot of concrete information, facts. And, and I, I really got near some kind of uh, truthful narrative. And then I spent like two years uh, while writing the book, the, the, going from draft to, to the real book, and saying, will I publish this or not? And if I publish this, will I uh, put my real name on it or a pseudonym? Because not, not only because of cultists, just because of, you know, people tend, tend to, to think of other people in one category, like you are a performer, which is, by the way, my, <laughs> my uh, we would say, main profession. I am a musician. So to a lot of people, it's, it's weird that uh, the professional and rather well-known musician writes a big book about something like a cult and UFOs and the paranormal and, and the spiritual world and whatever. Uh, so it took me some time to decide. And in the end, I was helped out by some friends who read the manuscript and, and told me, listen, this is, this, this is an amazing story. And, and you spent a quarter of a century in order to reconstruct it. You have to, to take credit, credit for this and you have to really put your name and your face uh, with this and no matter what happens. So in the end, I did it. Has the noise and negativity died down around this cult, this area? No, not really, because you know, the, the city of Capilla del Monte is now run by these people. The main uh, touristic attraction of the place is now this uh, so-called self-appointed new contactees, which will charge you a high amount of money to um, take you up uh, to the mountain and see lights like satellites, stars, planets, planes, um, cars, cities, and uh, small ranch lights, 
and any kind of really normal, absolutely normal lights, but they have this, um, their clients, you know, they come from the city, from cities, and they are very, they are not aware of living in the countryside or in the mountain, much less in the middle of the night up in the mountain. So everything is new to them. Everything is wonderful. Every light on the horizon is a miracle. Every satellite in a clear sky is an extraterrestrial ship. Every mambo jumbo chanting from the uh, so-called guru is a wonderful thing which connects them to their innermost spiritual core. And I have to tell you, I was, I mean, I paid for, for some of these excursions uh, together with other people. And uh, they, were, they were crying uh, out in sheer uh, ecstatic emotion by watching uh, a plane or a satellite or a car in the distance. And they really were crying uh, ecstatically, like they are seeing, you know, uh, Jesus Christ in person. So that's what we are, I guess. That's what we are. If we are able to just break down that way, seeing a couple of planes in the air and a couple of uh, cars on the road, during the night on a mountain top, then we are really built for something like this. So go figure if, if you go to a place like Skinwalker Ranch and you really see a big UFO or a, or a huge wolf walking in two legs, I guess we would die <laughs> if these people is crying just for this uh, very common light. But that's the way we are as a species, I guess. Yeah, the histrionics that get unlocked. And we also get the flip side of that, which is people will be experiencing the strangest event of their life and an inexplicable apathy will overtake them. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, if you think about it, it's a little bit what we discussed last time about the baby and the diapers and the, you know, the dirt water. Um, there is a kind of, of uh, sapience that is desperate to embrace anything, anything as a belief. Then you have the hardcore skeptics, skeptics which won't accept a new UFO landing uh, at their you know, garden <laughs> with two ETs saying hello, and they will just reject it. So I think it's very important to try to place ourselves in the middle ground and not be gullible, but also don't be, uh, you know, stupid, materialistic and uh, negationists. That there must be a middle ground. There must. I think you're an exemplar in that respect. I wanted to ask you about the archives of the impossible. I know you're attending and... Could you just let us in on what that is and why it's so exciting? Sure. Yeah. Um, you, you and probably most of the people listening to us know Jeffrey J. Kripal, Dr. Kripal, or Jeff, as <laughs> we call him among friends. He's a, a very brilliant scholar and 
college professor and um, author. It's perhaps with Jacques Vallée, the main uh, and most authorized uh, the uh, theoretician of this kind of phenomenon. He's a tenured professor at Rice University, Houston. He's also uh, um, a dean, if I recall, or assistant dean at the Humanities um, School of Rice University. And uh, he's organizing for the following next month of March, the official opening of the Archives of the Impossible, which is a new archive and library in Rice University. Uh, wholly devoted to manuscripts, unpublished and published materials from um, researchers all around the world about the uh, paranormal, impossible, um, psychic, supernatural, UFO, afterlife phenomena. And there will be a huge, a very big gathering actually of uh, like 60 people from all around the world at, at um, Rice. Um, Jeff will be presiding over, and there will be six plenary addresses, six plenary speakers, uh, several roundtables. Uh, the plenary speakers, as far as I remember, are Jacques Vallée, Whitley Strieber, Leslie King, Diana Walsh Pasulka, Edwin May, uh, well, of course, Jeff. Um, well, and the last one will be me, uh, in a way trying to represent uh, Latin America's casebook and Latin America's theory work, which is, I think, quite important and very, very interesting. So I will be there, um, like, uh, in, in the closing um, proceedings of the, of the encounter at Rice and uh, meeting with all these very interesting people. Will that be recorded or available publicly? Some of it, yes. Actually, I think this, the uh, six plenary addresses will be broadcasted live uh, through YouTube, I think. It will be streamed. So I'm sure they are just, uh, you know, uh, finalizing the uh, detailed schedule, which is very complex since we are 60 people. Um, and they will announce everything publicly, and, and we will soon have the dates and times for the uh, six plenary addresses to, to be broadcasted worldwide. Last question. I know I've kept you for quite a while, and you've been very generous with your time. It's very, it's very good for my practice of English. <laughs> Which is flawless. It's stunning. My last question is something I failed to circle back on in a previous part of our conversation. The day before we initially spoke, you connected with an anthropologist who had a similar experience to yours. You mentioned this sentient cloud, or whatever we might term it, flew through him three times, and that missing time was one of the side effects. Could you bring a little more color to that? Yes, I think uh, you guys in the States should profit from the fact that uh, Diego Escolar, that's his name, and Diego Escolar's paper uh, exists in an English translation. Uh, and sh you should really, all of you, <laughs> go out and read it. This is a very, very prestigious, uh, well-known Argentinian anthropologist working uh, in the Andes with the Warpe uh, people, Native American people called Warpists. 
And uh, he had several extraordinary experiences in the middle of the desert in, in what they call the, the pre-Andinian uh, range. Um, and many times he saw even a very close distance all kind of orbs and light clouds, you know, full of light. And in one opportunity, I, I think, I guess, yeah, it's the, the most important of, of, of all his experiences. Out there, there was this um, rather large kind of um, regularly shaped red cloud which uh, not only was nearby and, and denoted volition, some kind of intelligence, but he, uh, this thing went through uh, Diego and his horse, because he was on horse, on horseback, went through him three times. And each of the three times, he is able to remember that the, the cloud, you know, um, getting very, very, very near to his body and face and then he has like one minute of missing time and then he can recollect the cloud like uh, you know going the other way and just getting near to him again to go through him a second time and then he has again one or two minutes of missing time and it also happened a third time uh, this was more than 10 years ago, and up to this very moment, uh, he can clearly recollect the cloud coming at him and then at the back of his head and body, but he cannot recollect what he felt or saw or what happened when he was inside the red cloud. And once again, mind you, this is a, 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 a academic uh, scholar who published a peer review article on an on a academic uh, journal uh, about this. Not all the details are in the, in the paper. Actually, the paper refers only to his very first experience. He had like 40 others afterwards. But this is something which is, has been peer reviewed and accepted for publication and has been published three times, actually as a paper in Argentina, as a paper in the United States, and more recently as a chapter uh, in a, in a uh, scholarship, scholarly-oriented book of anthropology here in Argentina. And he's writing more, and uh, we are planning to go back to that place together. So stay tuned. <laughs> we will link to it in the show notes. Did the people, the Warpus people, the local people, did they have anything to say about these kind of phenomena that he experienced? Oh, yeah, the whole thing. Uh, as is, it's quite common in these cases, the, the, the Native American people know everything about these lights. They know them for centuries, and they are, they may be afraid of them, scared of them, but they know they exist and they appear and they are quite common. And actually, they kind of uh, recognize Dr. Escolar, which is, this is very funny, uh, he's as white and blonde and uh, uh, clear-colored-eyed uh, as you can imagine. I mean, he's a European through and through. Now he has white hair and white beard. And uh, the Warpeth told him uh, he's surely a Warpeth shaman 
shaman reincarnated because the lights uh, are really after him. The lights want to communicate with him. And so, in their opinion, Dr. Escolar is more of a warpe than the warpers themselves. Isn't this beautiful? Wow. How does he feel about that? Does he have feelings about that? He has a lot of feelings about that because this is the funny thing. Um, he's as materialistic a person and scientificistic and positivistic a person and a scholar as you can imagine, as you can get. He's not a spiritually oriented person. He's not a believer in God. Uh, he has no spiritual practice of his own. He's actually, I would say, Marxist. And of course, to be a, a Marxist, among other things, means to have a very materialistic grasp of history and reality, an extremely materialistic grasp. Actually, if you're a Marxist, it's everything about money, work, and production, and struggle among the social classes. So he was really, and together with being 100% European in his you know, uh, biological um, configuration, it's almost like someone pick him up out of any amount of possible people because he was the least uh, likely person to be in that position. He's the marginal figure in those conditions. Absolutely. In, in fact, this, this, um, this happenings, this, uh, this series of encounters are changing him in a way. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's 50, something like 55 years old, something like that. So he was telling me, it's, it's, it's a little bit too late for me to become a different person. I have more than a cent, more, more than half a century of living like a materialistic, materialistic scientist. So it's extremely difficult for me to change my mindset and start believing things and feeling things and have our, having, you know, another uh, outlook of reality. But on the other side, I was there. I saw the lights. I can't kind of communicated with them. This cloud went through me three times. I have missing times. And all the warpers say that I am surely a, a warper shaman, uh, a warper a medicine man reincarnated. So he doesn't know really how to cope with this. He, in, a, in a way, he knows he has to change a bit his mindset. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't want to, and, and it's very difficult for him. But I think that's very good and very interesting because as I was telling you the other day, I, I am rather a, a cold-minded person and a cool person when I'm faced with this unexplainable phenomena. Well, he's the champion of that. I mean, he, you cannot get more <laughs> zen-like than him. Than him. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing because I think it adds up... Uh, Somehow it validates even more his experiences. You, you, you get what I mean? Absolutely. And so not only is he going back, but you're going together? Hopefully, yes. Yes, that's the idea. Yeah. Do you know when? We are waiting uh, to, to just coordinate with a third person. Uh, 
there's, there's a, a very, very uh, smart and very experienced researcher down here named, an author also, named Juan Acevedo. And he's both uh, a trained clinician, clinic psychology, psychologist, and a descendant of a long lineage of Native American shamans, medicine men. So he has this wonderful knowledge of both worlds, in a way. And he would like to approach this as an Andinian kind of priest, mm -hmm. with you know the, the proper respect and devotion from these light forms, which apparently rule this very secluded part of the pre-Andinian range. So I think it would be extremely interesting to see what comes out of this new expedition with a very materialistic scientist, which will be Dr. Escolar, a very intelligent and well-read researcher slash psychologist slash medicine man like Dr. Acevedo, and a, and a kind of in-between, very open-minded and tabula rasa kind of guy, such as myself. And then, of course, we will have some warpers with us as guides, because that's the way it works. You go for a two or three or three days trip in the middle of nowhere with just a backpack and horses and your Native American guides. That's the way it works. I wish that approach of respect and regard was more universal in how people look into and engage the paranormal. For more information on Sebastiano, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, focusing on past life regression, contact with non-human entities, and creativity as a spiritual path. Go to theliminalmuse.com or just click the link in the show notes. Also, The Experiencer Group a private membership site for people who've had anomalous experiences, including mediumship, near-death, psi, alien abduction, and more. The Experiencer Group provides anonymous support groups and positive anomalous culture. Go to theexperiencergroup.com or just click the link in the show notes to become a member. Last but not least, thank you, patrons and plusers who support this show. It only exists because of you. Patrons and plusers get lots of exclusive content, including multiple episodes each month that are entirely exclusive to them. Minus listeners are assigned an entomologist. Revempathy. They say that being enlightened means you experience oneness. You understand the unity behind the opposites. Like revenge and empathy become one. Revempathy. Have you ever noticed how every time you're getting wasted with an entomologist, they just love to blather on endlessly about how insects rule the world? You're like, let's do shots. They're like, 80% of all the species in the world are insects. And you're like, that chick is hot. They're like, there are 30 million different species of insects on our planet. You go, let's do shots with that hot chick. And they go, at any given time, there are 10 quintillion insects alive. And you go, shut up. Let me tell you something. There's only one thing I hate more than bugs, and that's someone who loves bugs talking about bugs. It bugs me. 
Entomologists and bugs both think they're so awesome because there's so many of them and they're all over the planet and they just love to transmit disease, don't they? Have you ever noticed when a person gets sick, doctors even call it a bug? How long have insects been giving us malaria, Lyme disease, dengue fever with impunity? Well, no more. Maybe bugs need a taste of their own flavor. I'm gonna get revenge, and they're gonna learn empathy. Revempathy. There may be a Google gajillion insects in the world, but I only need a few for what I have planned. See, what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna get AIDS. And then I'm gonna go out into nature. The nature insects are always talking about. The nature insects worship like it's so great. Northern Minnesota. Yeah up by the Gunflint Trail, and then I'm going to strip naked and present my delectable tissue for consumption by these insects. Eat up, my unsuspecting subjects. I will permit an insect, say, a deer tick, to bite me, exsanguinate me even. Once that deer tick has eaten the shit out of me, I'm going to give it the news flash of a lifetime. Hey there, little fella. Is your tummy nice and full? Did you have a good time draining the blood out of my body? You think you're funny because you just gave me Lyme disease? Well, guess what? You have AIDS now. Yeah. And the last time I checked, there was no effective medical treatment available for a creature of your diminutive stature afflicted with acquired immune deficiency. Then I'm going to go over to Africa. Uh-huh. Out in the bush. No thanks, I won't be needing any mosquito netting for this safari. Hi there, Mr. African Mosquito. Is that right? You're hot shit because you just gave me malaria? Well, I'll see your malaria and I'll raise you in AIDS. <laughs> yeah, you got AIDS now. And Lyme disease. How's that for a stinger? Feel it puncture your monopoly on the transmission of viral maladies? I just flipped the fucking table on your immune system like Billy Joel and we didn't start the fire circa 1990. When I get back from Minnesota and Africa, I'm going to send all this to my entomologist nemesis. Nemesis. Nemesis? Whatever. All of them. Ha ha. Then I'm going back to that bar by myself and I'm going to do shots with that hot chick. And we are going to get wasted and then we're going to go back to my place and we're going to have very safe sex. With a lot of protection because I have malaria and Lyme disease and dates. That's true. So, we might just cuddle. The dogs are still expecting. Your father is a general. Benjamin's a murderer. Your sister is a sponge. Your mother is a worker. Jonah, I ran into your mom. She's an aging very well. Sometimes I think her face is gonna burst Cause hiding pain is work And your mother is a worker Jonah, some thoughts about your sister Her eyes are always closed Ever since that day, she's held a certain pose It's not a coma, she's the opposite of numb Some people so pain up And your sister is a sponge And your mother is a worker Jonah, I still see Ben But if I bring your name up, the conversation ends Cause he loaned you the shotgun, you took up to the cabin Whatever people say, he only hears the words Ben 
Benjamin's a murderer Your sister is a sponge Your mother is a worker Jonah, Jonah News about your dad You thought he drank before Now he drinks His body is at war And his stomach's never full Cause your father is a general Benjamin's a murderer Your sister is a sponge Your mother is a worker Your father is a general Benjamin's a murderer Your sister is a sponge Your mother is a worker Dogs are still expecting Your father is a general Benjamin's a murderer Your sister is a sponge Your mother is a worker